0: David, when he fled from his son, Absalom, O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Selah, but you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. Selah. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord. Deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Silah. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Janet. Well, as I've mentioned earlier, um, it's, it's just been a heavy season, and one of you even noticed. You know, I sent the email out, um, or in the newsletter, I guess, I, uh, a few days ago. I mentioned where we're going this morning, and you noticed, oh, okay, so we're deviating a little bit from our where we've been, um, we're going to spend this morning thinking and considering about um, where, do we fi- where do we find resilience? Uh, with the news out of Buffalo a couple weeks ago, and the news out of Texas right after that,
0: and then just this week, right here at home,
1: um, the news of Quarius Dunham, uh, there are a number of events in recent, in recent weeks that have really shaken us. I've, I found myself this week shaken. Uh, it, and I don't know why. You know, sometimes, sometimes things affect us differently and sometimes things affect us more and less. But what do we do when we're shaken, when we're really deeply shaken? How do we develop resilience in difficult seasons like this? How do we keep going when the going gets tough? We're going to really think about this question through the lens of Psalm 3. Uh, Psalm 3 is written by King David. It's written in one of the worst, darkest moments of his life. And you can even see that in the heading, which is actually part, it's not just a description, that's a part of the Hebrew text. Uh, A Psalm of King David when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. If you read in, uh, I believe it's in 2 Samuel, King David uh, was the king of Israel. And then his own son usurps the throne from him. So so David is writing this psalm to God. It's a psalm of lament, and actually about a third of the psalms are considered psalms of lament. Uh, He's writing this when he's lost his kingdom, he's lost his power, he's lost the support of his people, uh, he's lost his family. His own son is trying to take his life. And right in the middle of the psalm, in verse 5, he he writes this very curious verse, and that's really what we're structuring this whole morning around, verse 5, when he says, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm worried, when I'm anxious, and I imagine that King David was worried and anxious uh, when he was writing this, I find it very hard to sleep. I find it very difficult. It's a, those become the, the sleepless nights, the tossing, the turning. You're constantly churning in your mind through all the what-ifs, and yet David, in, in one of the darkest moments of his life, can write, I lie down and sleep. How can you lie down and sleep when you're surrounded by people who want to kill you? (laughs) How do we lie down and sleep when we keep hearing news stories that almost cripple us? I think the answer, I mean, you can phrase it in different words, but this morning we're going to think about the word resilience. And what I think we've been seeing, not just over the past couple of weeks, but really over the past couple of years is that we're not a very resilient culture. We're actually not a very resilient culture. About a year or so ago, I was listening to an interview by uh, one of my favorite uh, living theologians, Miroslav Volf. He's a a theologian out of Yale Yale, Yale Divinity School. He was talking about this theme about... um, Resilience, And he pointed out, rightfully so, the ancient world, the world in which David was writing and the world in which Jesus lived, was actually far more dangerous than our world today. Those are just objective. I mean, people have done studies that show that the world today is far safer than it was in the ancient world. They didn't have fire alarms and fire sprinklers and burglar alarms. They didn't have airbags in the ancient world. They didn't have modern medicine. I mean, it used to be you got a common infection and it could kill you. Today, we have all of those things. We, we have, in some ways, um, conquered, not necessarily our fears, but the things that strike fear into our hearts. We've literally removed sources of danger from our life, at least those of us who can afford to. And so we have great security systems and great alarm systems and, and we can afford good health care and good medicine and we can afford to live in neighborhoods that are safe. So what Miroslav Volf is pointing out is that we can, we can literally buy our way in a modern society out of danger. And then he points out this This problem. That if we can buy our way out of danger, out of the danger that we can control, then when danger comes into our lives that we can't control, we have no idea how to deal with it. We're not used to it. We don't know, in many ways, how to cultivate courage. We don't know how to cultivate resilience. So when the world around us says, like David says in verse 2, God will not deliver him, what do we do? How do we respond in those moments? When we wonder ourselves, like, will God, can God deliver me? That's just a different way of saying how could a good God allow something like this to happen? How do we cultivate resilience? More importantly, how do we get to a point in the middle of our fear and in the middle of our anxiety where we can say with King David, I lie down and sleep. I sleep. How can you lie down and sleep when there's a literal price on your head? In Psalm 3, King David teaches us how to be honest about our fear. He teaches us how to confront our fear. And then he teaches us how to persevere within our fear. How to be honest about our fear, how to confront our fear, and then how to persevere within our fear. First, he talks about being honest about our fear. Uh, there are some people, and you see this every now and then, um, there are some people who are just very cavalier about their fear. I don't know, I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not going to live under fear. I'm not, I don't get scared, which is baloney. Like, we all know that, right? Uh, there's some projection, there's some compensation going on there. Uh, King David, look at how he starts the psalm. Verse one: Oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Remember, this is at a time when his own son is trying to take his life. This is, this is a moment of real, deep desperation. And it's not only desperation for his sake, but Nobody around him is very encouraging anyway. Look at verse 2. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. So his own son is against him. Everybody around him is against him. He's not cavalier. He's not pretending like he's not afraid. He's very upfront about it. King David knows that true courage is not pretending like you have no fear. That would be foolish. We all have it. We all have it. And sometimes it just bubbles up inescapably. I was talking earlier this week with Jamie's aunt. Jamie's aunt is a grief counselor. And we were talking about just having, um, she's a grief counselor for children. Uh, so she walks children through real devastating periods of grief. And I called her and I said, help, help me to think through for myself, but also for kids. I'm like, how do we process some of this stuff with our kids? And she said, um, this isn't an answer to that question, but it was something that I found very helpful uh, she said, in moments like these, um, it's most important for us as caregivers to acknowledge our own fear, our own anxiety. She said, especially as, as parents, like one of the things that's just hardwired into a parent's psyche, into a parent's DNA, is that you would do anything to protect your kids. Uh, parents, right? There's, there's nothing you would not do to take care of your kids, to protect your kids. You give anything for them. And then something happens that you don't have control over. Which means that this thing that's outside of our control is really striking at a, a core, deep drive. And she said, she said, one of the first things that's very important is just to a- acknowledge your own fear in moments like that. We have to be honest about our fears. But we don't stay there. King David is honest about his fear, but then he confronts his fear. See, so, so, so being honest about our fear is the antidote to being a cavalier spirit. I don't get afraid. Um, confronting our fear is kind of the antidote to avoiding fear. So some people are cavalier about it. Others are just avoidant. We go to great lengths to avoid the things that make them afraid. This is probably all of us to some degree. People who run at the slightest sign of discomfort, But notice what King David says in verse 6. He says, I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Now, how do you, how do you get to that tens of thousands of people? city of Portsmouth has 20,000 residents. The whole, imagine the whole city of Portsmouth out to get you. How can you possibly say, I will not fear Pay attention to this. this I, th- I think this is so important, and it's very subtle, but it's very important. David does not say, I do not fear. He says, I will not fear. He doesn't say, I do not fear. He says, I will not fear. We tend to think of, pe- of fear primarily as an emotion. And we tend to think of emotions as things that just, they just are what they are, and we can't control them. It's just, it's there, like it or not. So we think of fear as just just something we feel and you can't do anything about it and right or wrong, but King David's not really talking about fear as an emotion. He's talking about it almost as an act of the will. I will not fear. Or said differently, I will myself to not fear. He's willing himself to not fear. You may think I'm making uh, too much out of this, and is that really what it says? I'll just ask you again. Do you know the most repeated command in the Bible? most repeated command is do not fear. If fear were something that we had no control over, if it were just an emotion that were there, like it or not, you can't deal with it, then how could God possibly tell us, do not fear? That's not to say it's not powerful. That's not to say that there aren't emotional aspects to it. But there is a volitional aspect to our fear, a willing aspect to our fear. How do you get to the point where you can say, I will myself not to fear? Look back to verse 3. Right after David has discussed his fear, he's talked about it, the first two verses, he's really acknowledged what's going on in his life. Verse 3, he says, But, but you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. What is David doing? He's shifting the focus from himself to God. He's moving the spotlight. I mean, if if you look, and you can even after the service or when you go home, take the program with you. It has the scripture printed in it. or Take your Bible and and look at the the move in the focus. Verse 1 and 2 are very clearly about David and his his bad situation. And all of a sudden, verse 3, he says, but you, you, God he shifts the focus from himself to God. This is what effectively what worship is. It's when we move the spotlight of our heart from our own situation to who God is. Uh, I mentioned him a couple times he was a pastor out of New York, uh, Tim Keller and he calls this uh, preaching to yourself. I think it's I don't I, I think it's original not to him. I think he's quoting D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher in London uh, earlier in the 20th century. You You have to preach to yourself. When when your emotions are taking you one place and your anxiety and it's spiraling downward and downward and downward, there comes a point where what's demanded is an exercise of the will to say, I will myself not to fear. And the only way to do that is to get the attention off yourself and onto God. You are a shield around me, oh God. You will protect me. You will cover me. You will bestow glory on me and lift up my head. You see what he's doing? He's naming, even if he doesn't feel these things, he's naming who God is and what God does. Which, side note, means he knows God well enough to know who God is and what God does. God, I'm in a bad place and there's a lot of people out to get me. What do I need? I need protection. You're a shield. You're a shield. You're a protector. God, I have lost all of my earthly reputation. What do you do? You bestow glory on me. You see, David knows God well enough to know how God is all of those things that he can't be for himself in that moment. That's worship. In the modern world, we would say, when you're having a hard time, look to the strength that is within you, which isn't bad advice until you get to the point that you can't find any strength within you. You need something more. God says, look to true strength, which is me. Or as Paul says at the end of is it first or second Corinthians, I don't remember. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Why? Because God says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power, God says, is made perfect in your weakness. It's not about you mustering up strength, but it's in you looking to the one who is true strength, which is Jesus Christ. Slightly different spin on it. If you look to first John, the very end of your Bible, uh the Apostle John wrote um three letters, to four really, but three uh, letters, first, second, and third John. And in John he has this very famous line that says, Perfect love casts out fear. You see what John is doing there? He's not he's not saying courage casts out fear. He's not saying strength casts out fear. He says love casts out fear. Just this week, I was listening to another interview with Arthur Brooks. Arthur Brooks is a, um, this is amazing, he's a double professor at Harvard. So he's a professor both at the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, which is like for government and civic service, and the Harvard Business School. I don't know how you get to be a professor at Harvard twice, but Arthur Brooks has done it. Pretty smart guy. And He was discussing that um, neurologists have, have learned from brain scans that the neurological opposite, like in your brain waves, I don't know how they measure this, but the neurological opposite of fear isn't courage, but love. That somehow, when people are experiencing fear and when they're experiencing love, those, those are these neurologically opposed forces. And he was sharing it, I mean, he's a, he's a Christian, so he wasn't, I'm sure, discovering, wow, what a great discovery. And we're like, we've known that for 2,000 years. First John, John wrote it 2,000 years ago. Perfect love casts out fear. In a moment of fear, what do I need? I don't need more strength or more courage from within. I need to worship the God who is my strength. I need to cultivate love for him, and I do that by marinating in his love for me. So preach to yourself. Preach to yourself. Yes, the world looks awful sometimes. We've been in some really horrible situations. God is still good. God is still good. What does that do? It builds resilience. You see, because we're not looking within for our strength, we're actually looking without. We're looking upward for our strength. And therefore, we can persevere. So we're honest about our fear, and then we confront it. But we confront it not with ourselves, with God. One of the best examples we have of this in Psalm 3 is verse 7. Look at verse 7. This is a real tricky one, so I want to spend a little, just a few minutes on it. Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. Strike my enemies on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked. What what are we going to do with that? Like, is that okay? Is that okay to be in the Bible? Is that okay to think that way or pray that way? I preached on Psalm 3 a couple of years ago and um, one of you wrote me an email, I think it was right after that, about that exact verse and, and you wrote, even when I'm steaming angry, I fear asking God to do something harsh to those giving me a hard time. Not that it doesn't cross my mind. <laughs> I love that. It crosses my mind, but I'm afraid, to. Like, can I even ask this? Is that okay? Let me point to just two realities about that verse. And how it actually is very, very helpful. We don't have to avoid or be afraid of of verses like that. Two realities. Number one, if you're oppressed, if people are legitimately um, raging against you, if you're a victim of true and deep injustice, then justice is really good news. Really good news. To many of us, it sounds really over the top, like that's, that's a step too far. That's probably because many of us have not experienced true and deep injustice and oppression like that. We live such comfortable lives. This isn't like an indictment, it's not wrong to live a comfortable life, there's, there's a lot of gift in that. But we live such comfortable lives that we frankly enjoy the luxury of not having to feel the depth of what this verse is really getting at. Imagine, um, if you've suffered an injustice, you want justice. Imagine a crim- criminal hurts someone you deeply love. And they catch the criminal and they go to court and they have a trial and the judge says, I find you guilty of doing this injustice, but you know what, I'm feeling merciful, so, so uh, I'm just going to let you go. How would you respond? Like, you would be outraged. You should be outraged if that were to happen. Why? Because you were a victim of injustice, and justice was not done. When you've suffered a deep injustice, you long for justice. That's, By the way, that's because we're made in the image of God, and God is a just God. And he has placed a longing for justice in your heart and in my heart. So first, justice is really good news if you're oppressed. Secondly, let me just point out, King David lays this desire at God's feet. Acknowledging your anger is very different from acting on your anger. And King David is not saying, I'm going to go out and break the teeth of the wicked. He's saying, God, will you please do it? In in every prayer, in every good prayer, there's, there's at least the implicit acknowledgement as Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, God, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Even if you don't use those words. David is is effectively saying, God, here's here's what I long for. Here's what I think justice demands. God, please, here's how I'm feeling. You do it. I don't dare. About a thousand years later, Paul would uh, say this in different words in Romans 12. He would say, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. it is written it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So we long for justice and we leave justice in the hands of the one who is truly just. But if justice belongs to God, if justice belongs to God and God alone and not to us, then we begin to learn what it means, even in the middle of the chaos and the grief and the anxiety and the fear, we know there is one who is just. There is one who will lift my head and who will exalt me and glorify me. Therefore, I can lie down and sleep and wake again because the Lord sustains me. Because the Lord sustains me. You can say along with David, look at verse eight, how he ends it. From the Lord, from the Lord, from the Lord. From who? Whom? Whom? From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. At the end of the day, we we can say with King David, I will not fear. I will myself not to fear. Why? Because from the Lord comes deliverance. From the Lord has come deliverance. we're We're about to act that out as we eat his flesh and drink his blood at the Lord's table. Just one last verse as we, as we wrap up. Look back at verse four. Give your bulletin or your Bible open. In verse four, David says, To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. Most commentators will tell you the holy hill that David is talking about is probably the hill in old Jerusalem, ancient Jerusalem, where the, the temple, the Jewish temple, was built. And the temple, we're going to look at this more in a couple weeks, represents God's presence and therefore God's protection. Archaeologists now will tell you that less than half a mile from the old holy hill where the temple stood stands another holy hill. This one's outside of the city limits of old Jerusalem. It's called Golgotha, the place of the skull. God has answered us from that holy hill. As Jesus hung on the cross, do you think he could echo how David starts this psalm? Listen again to how David starts the psalm, but hear Jesus saying it on that holy hill. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Fast forward to Matthew 27, as people mocked Jesus and said to him, he trusts in God, let God rescue him. And in that moment, God didn't. In that moment, God did not rescue Jesus. And as Jesus experienced the complete emptiness of God, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? See, Jesus experienced the emptiness of God so that we can always, along with King David, Say, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O God. Jesus knew what it was for God to not be around so that we never have to, for he is always with us. What is the greatest command and the most repeated command in the Bible? Do not fear. Why? For I am with you. Let's pray. Lord, you are with us and you proved that you long to be with us most profoundly at the cross. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then the word gave his life. And with a word, it is finished. Gave us hope and life and joy and peace. Teach us, O Lord, what it means to find hope and light and joy and peace, even if we're just seeing glimmers and slivers of those things in this world, knowing that you are coming again to show us the fullness of hope, the fullness of joy, the fullness of life, the fullness of peace. Teach us in our darkest moments to look not within and not to the world around us, but to look to you. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.